Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 82, and we're picking up the story from where we left off last episode. The Ndwandwe are chasing the Amazulu down the Implatuzi Valley, just north of the modern town of Ishowe, just south of Melmot. And for those geopolitical folks, that's just down the drag from Ngrantla. Most historians believe this battle took place in 1819, but some think it may have been a year later. However, the exact year is not as important as what this battle would herald. Zwedes and Dwandwe were on the rampage. He'd sent his warriors from his main Umuzi in Dweneni, and they'd overrun the Zulu centers of Mbelebeleni and Eseklebeni, and then driven the Zulu before them. The established Ndwanwe leader was sick and tired of this young upstart called Shaka and the little clan called the Zulu and was trying to teach him a lesson. Shaka had ample warning about this attack and moved his people south before the Ndwanwe arrived, then led his enemy on a wild goose chase to the south. The storytellers say that he ordered his warriors to create the impression that his main force was where it wasn't, so to speak. The idea was to use a section of warriors dragging bushes they'd cut down and then pulled through the grassy mountain sides so that it would appear that a large group of men had passed along the route while the main army headed off to lie in wait further downstream the Amplatuzi River. There are two main stories about where the decoys actually tracked, but the important thing to keep in mind is that Shaka had a knack for trickery and deception when it came to warfare. The medicine men were all so busy, as usual, creating mystery, causing fits and frothing and dysfunction, and of course, the Amazulu oral storytellers are quick to remind us that Shaka had much more powerful medicines than Zwede, and his and Dwandwe were going to be frothing like mad shortly. The real magic was Shaka's tactical brilliance and real-time situational awareness, his military strategy, but all leaders have found it important to have a bit of magic lying around just in case things go pear-shaped. Even American presidents have their priests, even if that president can't quote a single passage from any testament. You can always blame an ancestor too for being naughty, or a follower for being a witch, or the medicine man or woman for being useless if a battle goes badly. It's an excellent way to avoid accountability, and failure could be deadly for the war doctors. And so... The Ndwandwe MP chased the decoy for two days on their way to their destruction. First, the Zulu moved south of the Watumfulozi, crossing down from Nobamba and Isiklebeni, then heading up the Mtonjaneni mountain. That's pretty much exactly where the town of Melmoth is today, and Mtonjaneni means spring of water. From there, they headed south towards the headwaters of the Mplatuzi River, north of Nkantla. Meanwhile, a decoy group of Zulu had created a trail past Mpandleni, which is just east of the town of Nkantla. Then they dragged their branches along the sharp-pointed Tonkul Ridge, which overlooks the Mtlatuzi River. The Ndwanwe Impi also turned east towards Nomvebe. If you have a Google map, find the Khudutro Dam on the Mtlatuzi River, then follow the river upstream a few kilometers, and you'll find a little tributary called Mvuzani that joins from the south. That is close to a place called Bull's Run, which is northwest of Ishowe, above and to the left of the town on Google Maps, and almost directly south of Melmoth. I hope all of that doesn't make you dizzy. And here, waiting in the thick bush on the north side of a bend in the Mplatuzi River, lay Shaka's main regiments. Other stories have the Ndwandwe swinging further south, closer to Ishowe and Intumeni, then fighting a short skirmish on a ridge called Mpofu, 
resting overnight, then dropping northwards into the Umbuzani riverbed at dawn the next day. Whatever these intricate details, everyone agrees what happened next. They arrived at the confluence of the Umbuzani and the Mplatuzi, exactly where Shaka wanted to fight them. Shaka had arrived at this point earlier that very morning with his main force, and it seems the time of year was either spring or autumn, because the river was flowing strongly, but not flooding, which it does in summer. On the other hand, during winter the flow slows to a trickle. So Shaka and his warriors waited here for the Ndwanwe. It was about an hour after dawn when he spotted his quarry flooding down the Tonko Ridge towards them. Shaka's main force emerged from the thicket in which they were hiding and descended onto the Ndwanwe, who were crossing the Mplatuzi. Shaka ordered the Isiklebe Ibuta to attack along with the Isipezi, and watched the outcome while sitting on his haunches, shouting instructions to the warriors from the rise on the north bank. There are a pantheon of heroes that emerge at this moment, the brothers Mvudlana and Magidi Ka Menziwa, along with Mjaka Yaka Ka Ndozi and Ndozi Ka Nondumo, as well as Makondo Ka Mazwana. The Iziendani Ubuto then charged, led by Mjaka, followed by Intontela, the Dlangezwa and the Mgumanka regiments. There were others. We'll get to them in a minute. If you have Google Maps, then use the 3D function to take a close look at the southern bank of the Mplatuzi at this point. It's a gentle slope compared to the north, which undercuts a hill, and it's on this gentle slope that the Ndwanwe and the Zoo fought their bloodiest battle. And they fought all day. Some of the warriors grappled and stabbed their opponents in the river itself. The Mbelebele, the Dukuza, Isiklebe, Isipezi, the Iwombi Amabuta threw themselves at the Ndwanwe while Shaka remained on the hill watching. Behind him sat the younger Ubuto, the Tlangezwa, and the Mkangala, and the Tlangubo. Zvide's men fought heroically, but unlike Shaka, the Ndwanwe chief was sitting at his mother's Umuzi at Ezequitini to the north. However, Zvide's sons were at the battle, and most of them were going to die in and around the waters of the Mplatuzi on this day. Dayungubo, Nombengula, Mpepa, Nomatlanjana, Notokasa all believed to have died at the confluence of the Mvuzani and the Mplatuzi during that day of fighting. Leading the Ndwanwe Ebuta were the Isikwichi, who were from the home of Zwida's mother, Ntombazi. The Ndwanwe Amapela regiment gathered themselves and launched at the Zulu in an attempt at driving them back, but they themselves were pushed across the river. They recovered and attacked once more. Shaka now let his younger Amabuto loose, and finally the Nwandwe cracked, and they were going to be chased all the way to their home at Ndweneni. Historians don't know how many warriors were involved, nor how many died, but we know that this was a significant battle, the biggest and most important in this region for a generation. An historical earthquake had rolled across southern Africa, and at first no one noticed. But of course, that was going to change. How did Shaka manage to overwhelm such a significant opponent? Let's take a closer look. The corps of the army fighting for Shaka were the Isipezi, the first Ibuto he called up. These were the elders. Some were so old they'd been circumcised. Remember, circumcision was practiced by these people until the era just before Dingazwayo and Zwire, who stopped the process and converted it into a marriage ritual, which meant they could control the men for a longer period. Shaka then delayed the marriage process further as a technique to ensure longer military service. This means that the Isipezi elders were pretty old, perhaps older than 40. Thus, 
The main fighters who stopped in Dwandwe were the old Zulu. They were the true bloods, so to speak, of the royal house of the Zulu. But they couldn't beat the Ndwandwe without the newbies, those who were going to call themselves Zulu, such as the Kfele, Klubi, Kunu, Kwabe, Setoli, Lamini, Mkize. These moments and these names, these core fighters, are intrinsic to the history of South Africa. Their descendants were going to be involved all the way to the present, so we need to remember these names. For example, Kumfia Ka Nogandaya, a Kwabe warrior, the man was so feared and fought so well, he was given the nickname Zulu, even though he wasn't. Two others who fought and almost died need a mention, Hlati Kangridi and Ndleda Kasompise. After the battle, they were lying unconscious near the Mplatuzi River, on the bank, bleeding out. The Zulu went from body to body looking for their brethren who were living and found these two coughing blood. The Izimbongi and medicine men worked on them for the night and miraculously they regained consciousness and eventually both recovered from their wounds. Shaka, of course, was impressed. Later, it's reported he said to Tlati, What is your elder brother's kraal name then? And Tlati answered, Imalweleni. Shaka immediately renamed it Imatlabeni after the word for wounds, the Imatlabe. It was a medal of honour, if you like, a military reward that would never be forgotten. Apart from the Kunu folks and Komfia of the Kwabe, there are no Mtetwa, no Mkize, no one from the Tukela Valley mentioned in most of the stories of this battle. Did Shaka really fight this major battle with no one from there? Perhaps there is some selective editing by oral storytellers, preferring to keep the main heroes as pure Zulu, or perhaps Shaka really didn't have a broader appeal even now. Whatever the reason, the effect was Zwede was defeated, but he wasn't finished. Shaka's real genius emerged during the complex preparations for this battle. We need to have a look at a few of these things. Let's dispatch the myths first. There are stories about how he created the stabbing spear when we know he didn't. He just perfected its use. It's a bit like Steve Jobs of Apple. He didn't invent the computer mouse that was invented by a Xerox engineer, but Jobs re-engineered the mouse to make it easier for us to use. He didn't invent the MP3 player, just the iPod. Nor did Jobs invent the smartphone. He just improved it. And so it goes. There are stories that Sharko created the chest and horns attacking formation, but we know that Dingazwayo and even Senzanga Corner used the direct attack followed by an outflanking technique. While much has been written and many, many scribes have fallen over themselves talking about this chest and horns genius, Sharka only really used the chest and horns double flanking manoeuvre once in his entire history of battles and fights, and that was in 1826 at the Sikunyani battle which ended without a clear victory anyway. Once again, the real story is much more interesting and much more complex. You see, like Napoleon, Sharka's real gift was being able to quickly sum up the peaks and troughs of a landscape and then being able to place mobile forces on the geography quickly. His other gift was in organizing and motivating soldiers, just like Napoleon. Sharka also deployed a highly advanced and unique reconnaissance methodology he had an incredible network of intelligence gatherers who were very accurate in how they accumulated reports. Because Sharka valued a proper and real view of a situation, his own warriors were not afraid to feed him both good and bad news, as long as it was the truth. At this stage in his career, he refrained from shooting the messenger, to use the phrase, so the messengers were confident in giving him the facts. When he sent out spies, 
They didn't come back blowing smoke rings and lauding his excellency. They gave him the good and the bad to his face. In warfare, if your generals are only telling you what you want to hear, things will go very wrong, as Vladimir Putin has found out. Shaka was no Vladimir Putin. He was a real soldier who had actually fought in wars, unlike the Russian ex-KGB nationalist, and knew that if he understood the actual real threat, he could plan an actual real and largely successful response. Only the best leaders can stomach bad news, then be successful in a follow-up, which is a trait Shaka nurtured. He also nurtured his reconnaissance teams. He was actually way before his time, which is why we're still fascinated by him. Let me explain. One of the best-known Zulu spies was Nongila of the Mabaso people, who had originated in Intlazachi. They are another group who like to say they were originally living alongside Sengzanga Kona at Mtonjaneni near Mtlazachi. Zulu wannabes, I guess. But Nongila became an excellent spy for Shaka. He was invisible, sleeping in the bush, stealing food as he flitted from place to place, a ghost in the Zululand rolling hills. He carried a shield, two stabbing spears and a stick. That was all. No mats, no gourds, no escorts. He understood how to live off the land. Nongila didn't even carry a skin blanket and would head off on spying missions without any doctoring by medicine men or without informing Shaka, which was unusual but goes to show you how intrinsically he was trusted by the Zulu chief. Nongila even travelled all the way to the Cape when he heard about the British, these strange people from far away who had arrived at the shores of southern Africa. Then he walked all the way back to Zululand to provide Shaka with highly accurate descriptions about what he saw. Nongila seems to have had what Greek philosopher Socrates valued, an incredible ability to memorise without writing. His one finger was shattered fighting against the Ndwandwe, and he survived his spying missions all the way to a disastrous campaign that Shaka undertook called the Balule, where Nongila contracted malaria and almost died. He even lived to meet Bishop John Colenso after 1843, and is buried near Mount Edgecombe, but more about him in later podcasts. Other great spies or reconnaissance soldiers included Bovuka Nomabukabuka and Nomkula Kainsizwazana, two original Zulus from the heartland. Great spies, trusted, accurate, fastidious. Shaka regarded the old style of fighting as a kind of circus conducted by rank amateurs. Often the warriors would line up far apart and just fling spears at each other, while the women would stand behind yelling insults. Sometimes even the children would watch too, and when a warrior was pinned, that was usually the end of that, fight over, pinned, team lost. Shaka regarded this sort of fighting as childlike. From now on, his warriors would get up close and personal. The stabbing spear, while not his creation, was his Roman sword. He refined the technique. It was somewhere about now that he began dabbling with two types, although experts believe the two types really only came along later and possibly were introduced by Dingon after Shaka's death. However, we have enough oral evidence and corroborating information to say that Shaka had the two, the Isujula, used by a warrior as he charged into battle. Then when the enemy turned to flee, the warrior hauled out the truly scary, the the was the sound the spear made when it was pulled out of a human body, probably the midriff. This was a totalitarian warfare, and it was Shaka's to perfect, and he did. 
He also understood that if a warrior had only one, or maybe two, spears, they wouldn't be so ready to throw them away. Unlike the Mtetwa, who preferred a handful, he scoffed at the Mtetwa style of troops chucking spears, saying, Whoa, if these men were mine, I would cut a single assegai for each of them. I do not want them to bear wounds behind. In other words, his men must always face the enemy. A good man should have wounds on his chest. He changed the grip on the spear from the ukukubukumo, the overhead throwing style like a javelin, to the upwards thrust of a Roman or a Viking, the Throwing spears were still used, though. They never truly disappeared and, in fact, popped up during Dingon's time after Shaka. Thirdly, Shaka focused on speed. He told his warriors they should hold their shields under their arms and sprint towards the enemy, then bring the shields out and hold them ahead as they plunged into their opponents. The English soldiers at Isandlwana were going to feel the full brunt of this sort of high-speed manoeuvre much later, in 1879, in a truly historic battle. His fourth unique preference was for night attacks, which you've heard about already. Combine his capacity for planning his assaults based on good intelligence gathering with his knack for taking advantage of the landscape, mix in his high-speed assault and a training regimen par none, throw in the new close-quarter tactics, and you have a high-tech army the likes of which had never been seen in southern Africa. Then get these men to practice all of this at night, and you've got an army that was terrifying, and not just for local people, but for the British and the Boers as well. Shaka often defeated larger armies by using pure speed and motivation. He also understood that you have to eat an elephant one bite at a time. This was his fifth really clever technique, diplomacy. He overran the smaller clans one by one, careful not to upset their neighbours. Shaka would put the word out that he was going after so-and-so. Those around would be safe if they stayed away, and then Shaka did exactly as he said he would. Lastly, the Shaka-ism, that he was always bloodthirsty and killing everyone, is a myth. He enforced discipline strictly amongst his Amabuto. No one would be stabbing anyone before he tried to trick the enemy into giving up first. As the early European elephant traders attested, including Nathaniel Isaacs, who met Shaka and watched his fighting technique firsthand, said, It is not the Zulu's system of warfare to meet the enemy openly if they can avoid it. They like to conquer by stratagem and not by fighting, and to gain by a ruse what might be difficult for them to achieve by the spear. And yet, when he wanted to, he could exact revenge. And this was what he was going to do to the Ndwandwe. Shaka was also a proper thinking general. He never led his troops from the front. That would endanger the entire political strategy. Only an idiot, as a general, thinks it's clever to act as the point man, so to speak. It looks good on paper, but when someone sticks an assegai into your throat, there goes the state. A good general, like Napoleon and Shaka, is close enough to make quick decisions and close enough to observe exactly what's happening. But they don't prance around at the front like some exotic movie star. Shaka usually remained a few days behind his main regiments as they headed off to fight. When he was a youngster fighting with Dingizwayo, that was different. He built his name as a fearsome warrior. But as soon as he became a chief, then a king, he was far too smart to use grandiose displays of courage. He was already known as a courageous fighter and didn't have to prove this to anyone. By the way, there are two major series being filmed about Shaka in South Africa, one being produced by Netflix with apparently an extraordinary budget. Expect stunning filming 
well-oiled torsos, magical moments, poetic license, backdrops of the incredibly beautiful Zululand mountains, misty valleys, glinting iron, perhaps a bare breast or three, slow, dreamy focus pulls, lots of lovely Zulu singing, a cautious framing of polygamy and the treatment of women. That's the movies, after all. We're all hoping the producers try to get the facts straight and don't turn Shaka into some kind of Wakanda sci-fi epic. And so here we are, the Ndwandwe defeated at the Battle of Mshatuzi Valley, or the Mvuzani, as some call it. Meanwhile, as his sons were dying on his behalf, Zwide was sitting with his mother in Tombazi at her Ezeguichini Muzi, awaiting news from the Mshatuzi. Apparently, a cloud of dust was observed from the direction of the Mshatuzi late in the afternoon of that tumultuous day, and Zwide was told it was his column of warriors returning from slaughtering the Zulu. The approaching dust cloud was actually the Zulu Mbele Bele Ibuto Regiment, trotting at double quick time after scattering the Ndwandwe before them. And now they were going to go all out in revenge because Shaka had given them permission to terminate the Ndwandwe with extreme prejudice. What happened to Zwide is for next episode, but I can say he wasn't finished yet. The wily old fox had a few more tricks up his sleeve. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there at deslatham. Until next, goodbye.